Welcome to Sermon Audio from King Street Church, where it's our purpose to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. For more information about our church, please visit our website at kingstreetchurch.com. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'm reading verses 17 through 20. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to follow along as I read. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? In the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? For you are our glory and joy. Friends, there are several phrases in our church covenant. And if you're not a member of our church, we have a church covenant that we all commit to out of love for one another. And there's several phrases in that church covenant that come to mind in response to reading this, this passage. So I just want to make mention of them to you. The first one is about relying on God to have genuine love for each other. It says we will rely on the Holy Spirit and remember the love of our Savior Jesus in being united in brotherly love for one another. And the next phrase is a commitment to pray for that. To pray that we would have this kind of love for each other. Praying for this is a way of relying upon God for it, by the way. And so the second phrase is this. We will prayerfully ask God to give us a deep and affectionate love for one another. Next, we have a section that describes the family type of relationship that we should experience and walk forward in as a church. It says, we will walk beside one another. Just get the imagery in your mind. We will walk beside one another as faithful brothers and sisters. And the last one I'll mention is this. We will commit to one another, not out of obligation, but love. The Christian life is centered around relationships. As we have been united to Christ and brought into the loving fellowship of the Trinity, our relationship with God has been restored. And now we are called as His people to live out that loving relationship with one another. This is exactly what Jesus prays for in the high priestly prayer. In John 17, 21, this is what Jesus says. He prays that they, meaning us, God's people, the church, they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. I hope you caught that. We have been united to God. And the wonderful, 
community of love in the church, us being one, is so that the world might see that God sent His Son. So that people might come to believe in the gospel, come to trust in Jesus for salvation. This is why Jesus can say, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. We're told that the church has a mission and has a goal. And we're given part of that goal in Ephesians chapter 4 because it tells us that a church has been given leaders, has been given pastor teachers. And the pastor teacher's job is to equip the saints, the church, for the work of the ministry. And there's a result to the church doing the work of the ministry. And this is what that result is. In Ephesians 4, 15 through 16. This is what it's aimed at. This is the purpose of this. We are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The church is called to build itself up in love, to lovingly help one another become more and more like Christ. And the church does that by each individual in the church contributing his or her own part. That's a picture of this church covenant, friends. That's a picture of living life together, sharing the scriptures with each other, speaking the truth in love with one another, using our gifts to serve, playing a part in helping the whole congregation become more like Jesus. That's the responsibility of every Christian sitting in a chair in this room. That's what we're called to do as God's people. If you're in Christ, you now belong to a new family. And I know that this sometimes is new for a lot of folks, especially in America, because we live in such an individualistic society. That's one reason. We live in a culture where you're encouraged to just focus on yourself, your health, your wealth, your job, your house, your dreams, your aspirations, and so on. And it would be wrong for somebody to tell you to not focus on yourself in those ways, but to do something for the interest of others. We also struggle in our culture more and more so at building genuine, lasting relationships because a lot of people have some of their most communication and interactions through a screen or an app on a phone instead of in person. Now, we have a lot to be thankful for in regards to technology, but we should allow technology to aid us in building genuine relationships instead of being a substitute for them. And not only this, many self-proclaiming Christians have grown very weary of churches. Maybe you're skeptical of any kind of organized group of people. Or maybe you're unaware of your needs and feel as though you can be a faithful Christian and live life on your own. Friends, all of these mindsets, all of these tendencies need to be put to death. 
if we are to live how God wants us. Not only have we been commanded in God's Word in Hebrews 10.25 to not forsake the assembly, to not forsake the gathering of God's people, but we are also in desperate need of the ministry of the church. Do you not know that you are in desperate need for other brothers and sisters in Christ? How else can we learn to grow up in Christ-likeness as a body unless we are being equipped by the pastors? And how else can we grow up in Christ-likeness without the ministry of the whole body building itself up in love, each individual part? My dear friends, you are more desperate for the ministry of the church than you know. More desperate than you could ever imagine. This is God's means for growing us. But let's assume for a moment that you don't feel like you're in need. Which you are. That would be a false assumption. But even if you felt like you're not in need, what about all those other lowly saints who are? Why distance yourself from people who need your help even if you don't need theirs? I mean, what kind of love would lead someone to live life on their own because they don't need help while leaving the other Christians around them? to to slug it out on their own without any guidance, without any support. Don't you think love would compel you, even if you feel like you don't need it, that love would compel you to commit yourself to God's people because there are other people who do. Now that's a false assumption, but even if you have that false assumption, I can only imagine pride and a lack of love leading someone to not commit to God's people. I mention all of this because it's important. We might be small as a church, but we are church. And this is what God calls us to. And it's important if you're here this morning and you're a Christian and you're detached from any meaningful church relationship, do not continue to distance yourself from God's people. Because in committing to God's people in love, it displays the wonderful love of God. That should be a goal of yours in your life. I want God to look good. I want His love to look good. I want His wisdom to be on display in the unity of the church. But the other reason I mention this issue is because our text deals with it. It deals with the relational, love, affectionate aspect of being a Christian. This morning we're looking at the Apostle Paul and his love for the Thessalonians. In verse 17 he says, I was all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Now while Paul was an apostle, and and we're not, we have a lot to learn, I think, from the affection he had for this church in Thessalonica. And so the charge for all of us this morning sitting in this room is that we too would grow all the more eager to see one another's faces. That this church would be a genuine community of being built up in love so that the world would know something of the great love of our Savior Jesus Christ. Now there are at least four things pertaining to to this that we can learn in our text this morning. Four things that we can see about Paul's love for these Christians. And in turn, these are four ways that we can be encouraged to do the same 
with each other. I'll give them to you one at a time. The first thing I want us to see in regards to Paul's love is this. Paul did not want to be separated from the Thessalonians. Instead, he was taken away. He did not want to be separated from them. He was taken away. Look at verse 17. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you. Now, if you remember in chapter 2, Paul is giving a defense for the genuineness of his ministry. He hasn't used any tricks or gimmicks. He hasn't used any hooks. No bait and switch. His message was not marked by error. His life was not filled with impurity like some of the other traveling preachers. Instead, for him, the gospel was preached from his mouth and it was displayed in his life. A life that he was freely sharing with the others because they became so desirous to him. So affectionate to him. And here again, it seems like Paul's giving some sort of defense for why he left Thessalonica. And why he hadn't returned. And this is important. It's important because in verse 14 of chapter 2, Paul says this, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. How? For you also endured the same sufferings. This church in Thessalonica received suffering, mainly through persecution. And the charge could have been that Paul decided to leave them when things got tough. I mean, so much for the fatherly and motherly love he had for them, as he claims. What kind of father, what kind of mother would abandon their children when the child undergoes great suffering? Of course, Paul didn't just abandon the Thessalonians. He says he was taken away. And there's a way in which they were taken away. Persecution came, and in fact, the Thessalonians sent them. In Acts 17.10, it tells us what happened when the persecution came, and they endured it for a while. It says, the brethren, so the Christians in Thessalonica, immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. They weren't able to continue. The persecution had gotten so bad. And they were sent away by the church. And Paul tells us here in our text that he was forced to leave. He even says he was forced to stay away. Verse 18, For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. Paul didn't want to abandon the Thessalonians. He didn't want to stay away from them. Instead, he was genuinely forced to leave and he was prevented from returning. Now, I want to point out something quickly in this text. When Paul says that he was taken away from them, he uses the word aporphanizo. I wonder if you heard if you heard something interesting there. Aporphanizo. It's the same word used to describe an orphan. And here, Paul's using it as a verb to describe what happened to him when he was taken away. It's like Paul saying, I was orphaned from you. Now just imagine for a moment the trauma and the heartache 
that would come over a child being ripped away from his or her parents and becoming an orphan. Paul saying, I was ripped away from you. When I was forced to leave, it was like I was orphaned from you. Friends, is this how you feel when you are for some reason or another forced to be away from each other? Do you feel ripped away? Do you feel hindered? Or do you carry on like it's just, it's just another day? I didn't miss out on much. See, when you look around this room and you see the people in it, do you have a sense about you that this is your family? These are my people. And to be removed from them would be like being orphaned from them. Be like being ripped away against my choice, against my will. Friends, I imagine that the degree to which you may feel this might be an indication of how much love you have for those in this church. Pray for this kind of heart. Pray for this kind of desire for being with one another. Ask God to give you this level of affection. Could there be anything more eye-opening to the world around you? These people are different. They don't have the same background. They don't have, come from the same culture. They don't come from the same part of the country. And they, they're like family. When they're apart from each other, they feel like they've been orphaned from each other. This isn't just a biological relationship between a child and his mom and dad. These are people who maybe they've only known each other for the last year. Let me just ask one more provoking question. If someone were to accuse you of not wanting to be with God's people because you hadn't been around, or you hadn't been gathering, or you hadn't been meeting, what kind of response would you have if it was genuine? You see, this is what Paul was accused of, but his response is, it's not that I didn't want to be with them. I do want to be with them. But the enemy forced me away. It was like I was orphaned from them. I was taken away from them. I didn't want to leave. You see, friends, there is a big difference between being taken away from God's people and choosing to stay away. There's a major difference between Satan hindering you from seeing God's people and just being lazy or forgetful. And feeling like you're orphaned and feeling like you've been taken away from God's people is totally different from failing to be with them because of some excuse. The difference here, I would imagine, is genuine love and genuine affection and genuine eagerness to see each other's face. Pray that you would have this type of heart in you for one another. The next thing that we see of Paul's love for the Thessalonians is his great desire, his eagerness to see them. So let's read verse 17 again. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Now we have to keep in mind here that Paul's eagerness and Paul's great desire to see the Thessalonians face to face was met with action. He's not just saying it. 
In fact, the ESV here seems to capture the thrust of of the verse more fully. It says, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. We endeavored, we tried. And this is exactly what verse 18 goes on to say. How do we know that this eagerness was met with action? How do we know that Paul was genuinely all the more eager to see the Thessalonians? Verse 18, for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once. But he was injured. So he made attempt after attempt. Now there's two details I want us to all see, and I think that these details are key to exposing the type of love and affection that we should have for one another in this, in this point. When, when we connect Paul's increased desire to see the Thessalonians with the context in which it happened, his brotherly, affectionate love for them is on display. So notice the context around his desire to be with them. Verse 17, Having been taken away from you for a short while, we were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Having been taken away from you for a short while, we were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Now notice two things. First, Paul is showing these believers that his affection for them didn't decrease as his distance from them increased. In fact, in the midst of being taken away, having been taken away, Paul's desire to be with them grew all the more. His affection and his love for these believers didn't diminish with the distance from them. If anything, his being taken away sparked a greater desire to be with them. How often can we find ourselves starting to wonder just by being away from God's people for a couple of weeks and then we aren't necessarily provoked to want to be back with one another. We're provoked to continue in whatever we were doing. We desperately need this type of love. But I want you to notice another nuance. Two words. Paul says, having been taken away from you for a short while. A short while. Paul's desire to see them increased rapidly, even though it was only a short while. I love what John Calvin has to say about this. He says, it's not to be wondered. Of course, if length of time should occasion weariness or sadness. His idea there is, of course, if you haven't seen somebody for a while, it might bring about weariness or sadness. But we must have a strong feeling of attachment when we find it difficult to wait even a single hour. Paul didn't say his desire to see them grew after he'd been taken away for a long while. He said it was only after... A short while. Man, I want you to imagine for a moment, put yourself in this situation. If you have to leave home for work or something for an extended period of time, and you were to write to your wife, My dearest love, I began to miss you and wanted to see you once I had been on the road for a few months. I don't think she would find that very flattering. What you should say and hopefully you would mean it, and it would be from the bottom of your heart, would be, my dear, I began to miss you as soon as I stepped foot out of the house. 
Now, Paul's not just giving lip service. He really means this. It's a type of attraction and love that is special. Paul didn't have a desire to see them only once he'd been separated for a while. He wanted to see them having only been separated for a short while. And so, brothers and sisters, it's worth asking yourself, do you have this same eagerness to see one another? If not, why not? If you were kept from gathering one Sunday due to sickness, are you all the more eager to see people the next week in the church? How long can you bear to go without talking to one another and being encouraged by each other? I think the deeper and the closer the affection, the sooner it will be before you have an overwhelming eagerness to see each other face to face. So pray for this. Ask God to give you this kind of heart. We need to ask for God to make us a people who desire to see each other face to face, week in, week out, live life together. I'm praying that He would give us hearts that run to one another if we haven't seen someone in a week or two. I know we may not be forced apart by persecution, but how much are you eager to see each other when you haven't for a week or two? For whatever reason it could be. Sickness, work. My dear friends, there are so many things that grasp for our attention that grasp for our affection, that that beg us to love them. Let's not be people who miss sports and entertainment and work or sleep or whatever it is more than God's people. I can't miss that. Pray that God would give you a heart that is eager to be with God's people. And as we said, it should be backed up by action. How do we know that Paul wanted to see them? It says he endeavored time and time again. Is this the mark of your life? Eagerness to be with God's people marked by consistent efforts to do so. It's worthy of our consideration. The third thing that we can see about Paul's love for the Thessalonians is his recognition and his concern for Satan's role in the process. Now that might be a weird point, but it's there in our text. Look at verse 18 again. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. There were times in Paul's ministry where it was said that God hindered him, where God stopped him from going somewhere. Take Acts 16.6. Uh, Luke writes about Paul and his evangelistic team. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So they were forbidden, hindered from going somewhere. The Holy Spirit prevented Paul from going into Asia and preaching the word. But in our text this morning, Paul directly says that Satan hindered him. Now why might that fact allude to Paul's love for the Thessalonian believers? Well, friends, in the same way that a soldier's battle against the enemy demonstrates his love and loyalty for his country. Paul is using military language here in the original Greek. He acknowledged that there's a conflict and a battle going on. When he says Satan hindered us, the word hindered carries this idea of stopping or cutting off. 
And it was often used as a military term. As one military attempted to stop the other from advancing, they were said to cut up and destroy and demolish the road. Why? To keep the enemy from coming, to hinder them from being able to pass. And apparently, Paul says, this is what Satan's doing. He's destroying Paul's pathway back to these believers. Why? Because he hates these Thessalonian Christians. Satan does. And he doesn't want Paul to come and encourage them and to help them continue in their faith. Yet Paul still strives time and time again. This demonstrates his love for them. And Paul also mentions Satan in chapter 3, verse 5. And it indicates even more of Paul's thinking here, of what's going on in his mind. The next chapter, verse 5, a few verses later. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter, that is Satan, might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. Now, there's a word there that's already showed up earlier in the letter. Paul's worried that the tempter would tempt the Thessalonians and his labor would be in vain. Where else have we seen in vain? If you remember 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says his labor was not in vain. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. In other words, because the Thessalonians had received the Word of God as the Word of God, because they had come to trust in Jesus for salvation, he knew that his work, his ministry there was not in vain. Yet there was still this threat in his mind that Satan would come and take the Word which had been sown in them. Which is what Jesus says Satan loves to do in the parable of the seeds. The seeds that fell on the road, Satan came, took them away. He's concerned. Is the deceiver going to come and deceive them? Turn them away from Christ and making my work among them vanity? Making it in vain? And so do you see Paul's love in this situation? He was concerned for these brothers and sisters. He tried all the more to come and see them. Yet Satan hindered him every way. And, and maybe, in Paul's mind, Satan was about to deceive these Thessalonians who'd become so precious to him. Friends, I do wonder, do you consider your commitment to one another as seriously as this? Is it a matter of life or death to you? You look at one another and you haven't seen each other in a while and you wonder, I don't want Satan to deceive them. I want to help them to persevere and to grow. That's what the Bible calls us to. Hebrews 3, 12-13. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We are in a war, friends. And Satan would love nothing more than to drive a wedge between God's people or to hinder them from seeing each other. You know what happens when you get a sheep all on its lonesome? 
That's when the wolves attack it and destroy it. We must have a deep and profound concern for one another's souls. And this is seen in Paul's life as he acknowledged the role of Satan in this situation. But friends, the last thing that we need to see about Paul's affection for the Thessalonians is that he calls them his glory and his joy. Verses 19 through 20. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Now, how can Paul say that? How can Paul, whose only boast was in the Lord and whose hope was in Jesus, say that the Thessalonians were his hope and the crown of his exaltation? How can he call them his glory and his joy? I imagine this is very similar to John when he says in 3 John verse 4, I have no greater joy than this than to hear of my children walking in the truth. Talking about the churches that he shared the gospel with. No greater joy than to know that they're walking in the truth. Of course, Paul is not saying he should ditch his hope in Jesus for hope in his people. But the meaning is fairly clear. It brings joy to Paul to know that the Thessalonians are doing well in their faith. Paul's joy and glory is wrapped up in the faithfulness of the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians are Paul's evidence of the fruitfulness of his ministry. Evidence that he didn't labor in vain, but that he was useful to God and that God used him to do his will. He toiled day and night and nothing brought him greater joy than to know that God was using him in the lives of the Thessalonians because they were now following Jesus. Friends, Paul's not talking about self-exaltation. He's doing it from a place that recognizes that God is at work in him. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. There's a few passages in Scripture that speak of this kind of love, this kind of receiving joy and glory and a reward from the work that we've done here on this earth amongst one another. Here's one example. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another builder is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. 
If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Paul's thinking about this context of being used by God and receiving a reward, a, a, a reward for his labors, which is seen in the faithfulness of the Thessalonians. That's why he's able to say, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? You are our glory and joy. Or consider 1 Corinthians 3. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 4. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Are you seeking to live for the praise of men? Or are you seeking to live from the praise that comes from God? In such a way that you work and toil, not to gain your salvation, but to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. And to receive a reward for the work that you had done that was lasting. I wonder if you sense some of this, that your joy and your pride is wrapped up in seeing others come to know Christ and to follow Him more faithfully. Are you working to hear this well done, good and faithful servant from God? Are you striving to use your gifts and your abilities to serve this church so that we may be brought up in Christ-likeness? Who in this church, what people in this church are in this sense your glory and joy? Who in this church is the evidence of your fruitful labor? Those in whom you will receive a reward at the coming of Christ because God used you to help them persevere and to stand firm in the faith. Is this even an element of your faith of Christianity that you've even considered very much? Friends, I hope you see something of the radical love and affection that Paul had for the Thessalonians. And my prayer is that you would go and do the same with one another. Just look around this room at the people who are sitting here. Do you love the people in this room? Are you eager to see them when you've been taken away from them because you want to see them face to face and you want to help them face temptation so that when Christ comes, you'll have no need to be ashamed of your love and your work and your toiling for these people. Instead, you'll have every reason to thank God for His work in you as you've loved the church. And friends, if, if you don't know Jesus... We would encourage you that you can only be brought into His church and experience this type of affection and love by being united to Christ and trusting in Him alone for salvation. Brothers and sisters who know Jesus but are not a part of a church, don't continue to miss out on the wonderful benefits and blessings and the means that God uses to make you more like Him by being united to His people.
come and commit to live as a loving community so that the world might see that the Father sent His Son for sinners. Let's pray.